Hi, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for coming on with Toronto Today and joining us, finding our podcast and giving it your time. And we'll give you our energy back. It sounds like a reasonable transaction. We've got David Reevely on the show, wrapping the provincial election a week later. And we've certainly learned some insights about it. We go over where the Liberals need to go from this point on. Education is going to be a big issue when the cabinet does indeed get announced. I don't think anybody expects the Minister of Education to be anybody other than Stephen Lecce. We'll see if indeed that's the case. We'll get David's read on it as well. Mask mandates are gone for public transit on subways and buses. Obviously, federal issues um, with masks, federal mandates with masks at the uh, on the planes and on the trains and whatnot via rail, Air Canada, et cetera, et cetera. But they're gone locally, still in some healthcare settings, but important to make that distinction. That's everything in healthcare. That's a therapist's office. That's physio. That is... Uh, that's more widespread than we might think. We'll get into all those issues, plus the return of Sheba Siddiqui from Banff, Alberta, back off a brief vacation. We'll find out how that was for her. Much more than that on the Toronto Today podcast, which begins now. Carjackings. There was another one in the city last night. Um, I don't know how long and, and what our appetite is to, you know, here's another carjack victim. This happened. That happened. But I do know this. Looking at it last night, um, the facts about carjacking are pretty significant in the United States. And we'll compare this number and, and we'll think that we're like them because I do think this is happening in most major cities. Uh, go back to 2011. That's 11,000 or 11 years ago. 716,508 vehicles were stolen in America. So we're about 10 percent of the population. Let's say 71,000 cars are stolen. Well, they were able to get that rate down for a little bit. Why? Why was that? They were it, carjacking went down two point seven percent from seventeen to eighteen, three point six percent eighteen to nineteen. Here's the problem: it rose to eleven point eight percent, rose by eleven point eight percent to eight hundred ten thousand. So, in a ten year span, even though there was some fluctuation, even though there were some years when the average uh, and the the total number of vehicles stolen dropped in the U S. and A. It went up about 100,000 over the span of nine years. Well, let's fast forward to now, where everybody knows it's happening at a much, much higher rate. I hear from people that that are talking to me, you're more hyper aware of the potential for it to happen. And by the way, this is just vehicles stolen. It's two different aspects to this. There's, did I, come, did I leave it in a, in a downtown parking lot? Did I leave it in my driveway? Is it gone? Can they manufacture the fobs? Do they get a set of my keys? Do they hot wire it? How they get it? And then there's the carjack factor as well. And uh, we've all seen it. You know, it's usually something you see on movies and TV. Person commits a crime. They flee the scene. They pull somebody out of a car. Sometimes it's a good guy, by the way. The good guy sometimes wants that car. I need this car. I'm commandeering this car. Well, we're getting commandeered a lot in Toronto. Mostly for from bad guys, not good guys, bad guys. And yes, guys, of course, it's guys. We're not seeing a lot of heavily uh, notable female carjacking rings. By the way, we're also seeing that they're all young. Yesterday, a 19 year old and 17 year old were arrested. We're seeing minors arrested for carjacking. Um, it, it's a huge, huge issue. 42 year olds are, are, are now carjacking people. 58-year-olds are not out carjacking people. They're not. They may consider other crimes. <laughs> they they may be they may be uh, you know scheming and plotting away, but they're not stealing your car at gunpoint 
or knife point or screwdriver point. They're just not. So I want to talk about these two arrests yesterday uh, over the next few minutes. And I want to also tell you that we're going to have a great guest on this front and a big reason why two arrests were made yesterday. Toronto Police Inspector Richard Harris is going to join us. The 19-year-old and 17-year-old were arrested yesterday. They're going to they're not doing all the carjackings. But when you find out these two are facing a combined 100 charges, I didn't stutter 100, not 10, not 20, 100 cars. Uh, Harris talked about the volume of charges, how the investigation had to weave through a lot of different layers to get to this point where they were arrested. We have laid 100 charges against a 19 year old man, a 17 year old boy as a result of this investigation. While driving in Brampton, a high-risk takedown was initiated and the two males were taken into custody without incident. We allege two handguns, a knife, quantity of stolen property, a robbery kit, and clothing used during these offenses was uh, located and seized. Now, I wondered about sentences for carjacking. I wondered what that what what the main uh, uh, crux is to decide when you get somebody, you know, red-handed, you catch them, you know, cold what the sentencing is like. And uh, on the law firm, greghillassociates.com, no no relation, it's a first name thing, Uh, the penalties for carjacking alone, it writes on this website, without enhancements are a three, five, or nine-year sentence and restitution to each victim. If someone's injured, three to six more years can be added. We said this about five weeks ago when this huge threat started becoming to be a lot more commonplace And it was something you'd overhear conversations. You'd be getting a coffee somewhere. People would start it up uh, at at the proverbial weekend backyard barbecue and saying, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. Okay, about carjacking. And uh, as well, there's so so many layers to this. Why would anyone we said this on the show? Why would anyone rob a bank now? That's pretty complicated. Robbing a bank and there's video and whatnot. And there's little buttons that get pressed and. All the money's insured anyways. The reason we keep our money in banks is it's insured. It gets stolen out of our house. Good luck explaining that you had $58,423 in cash under your mattress, but the robbers found it. They know exactly how much money you've got in the bank, and that's part of the reason, though we pay fees, why you feel good about having your money in the bank and not under your mattress or in a sock drawer. Okay, all that being said, when we think about the sentencing, deterrence has to factor in, but it's not. And this is an easy way, though, in this case, as we'll document with uh, with Richard Harris at 645, um, these two guys weren't selling them overseas. They weren't getting them into a container and f- flipping them uh, and, and getting a cash payment for their work, quote unquote. They were going to use the cars they were stealing to commit more crimes. OK, um, so it's a remarkable, remarkable story. Uh, this is an L.A. carjack victim yesterday. This carjack victim is 81 years old, a woman, and in a grocery store parking lot. I watched the surveillance video of it last night. Broad daylight, 81-year-old woman gets carjacked with, you know, in essence, an SUV. Nothing fancy. We're not talking fast and the furious. Here's her recount, and here's some of her emotion of, uh, of all this happening. I said... I don't have any more food. It's all gone, but I can give you some iced tea. She says he grabs her keys in the trunk and gets into the driver's seat, but Steinman isn't leaving without a fight. Surveillance video shows her open the door, but the man slams it shut. Then I kept trying, you know, to open it again. And let me tell you, I'm not afraid. And I was going to grab his shirt and just drag that little puppy right out of the front seat. 
but I couldn't get the door open. The man drives off and Steinman falls to the ground, now lapped with bruises on her arm. The driver taking off with her 2015 Kia Sportage, her wallet and purse. I had to change the locks. He got that. I was so, so afraid that he would try to break in or something. It's unbelievable. That's an 81-year-old woman um, who lives alone. And now her biggest fear, she's lost her car, she's lost her wallet, she's got to replace all her ID. We know what a pain in the ass that is. We've all lost our wallet before, but probably not like this. And we haven't worried about our house keys. And if we've lost our house keys, I don't know, we're in university and we live with six roommates or there's four of us in the house or you're just like, bring it on. I'm ready for you. This is an 81 year old woman. She tried to get them out of the car. She didn't exactly, um, you know, comply with these three men who threw her out of in essence she never got to get in her car they kind of just shoved her out of the way she's pulling on the door handle they've already got it locked they back out she's hanging on and she flies to the pavement so i saw the video those bruises on her hand are real uh emma title wrote a great op-ed in the star and she talked a lot about what's going on with young people anyway and it is young people and as she writes it's a cop-out to blame a crime wave involving young people solely on the emotional toll of the pandemic But just as it would be foolish to blame what could be an uptick in young people committing predatory crimes entirely on pandemic isolation, it would be equally foolish to rule out that influence altogether. People have gotten more brazen, more independent, more willing to take chances. It seems with regulations and what's what's a regulation? The law. The law is full of regulations. There's a reason we follow them properly. And this is just seems like an easy get for criminals at this particular point in time. It's a massive, massive problem. And yes, we can look at the socioeconomic groups of the criminality, where it's happening, who's doing it. I just said young men are doing it. That's patently obvious. But as well, we've also got to look at what would deter them. Stiffer sentences, mandatory sentences. I don't like just people sending people to jail for the sake of sending them to jail. But we got to think of something here. And we welcome back with open arms. And warm voices, Sheba Siddiqui to the show. You know, you took your vacation with your family a couple weeks ago, a lot of bonding. There was a lot of, you know, the, the foursome, we're tight, we're a unit. And then you, it's like last week you made a solo album. You decided to step out of the group a little <laughs> bit. And you're like, I, you know, I got, I got songs to sing on my own here. It was great hanging out with you guys. You're Phil Collins. You're like, enough of this Genesis business. I'm going to go do my own thing. Although you didn't go by yourself, did you? How many people were on your flight to uh, Banff, Alberta? Oh, it was uh, myself and a couple of girlfriends. We, uh, three other friends. We have a, we have a hiking group and then a couple of us decided to plan a trip and four of us were available. It worked out and we spent the last five days hiking in the beautiful Canadian Rockies. It's amazing. And so is this country you'd seen before or had you not been there before? I had been there. The last time I had been there, I had two very small babies with me. So it was a very different trip. (laughs) Yes, I I think (laughs) so. Let's hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, it was a very different trip. So this time around, it was just incredible. I, I don't, you know me, I love exploring Canada. I love our country. And, you know, while the borders were closed during the pandemic, we thought, okay, well, what are we going to do? Because we love to travel as a family. And we just decided, let's just start exploring Canada. So we did start, you know, we went to PEI. We had mm-hmm. other plans for Newfoundland. Uh, but let's see. But Banff was just incredible. It's an amazing, it's just, Alberta is an amazing province. I don't know if I could live there. I'll be honest. I don't know if I could live there. But just visiting it, there's nothing else like it specifically to Banff and Jasper in the country. I wonder if people sense that because you and I probably know many people that say that about Toronto. And I've always been at most, well, I grew up the first quarter century of my life, two hours from here. And then 
a year, about four hours, or 10 years, about four hours from here, and now I've been here for 15 years. So I look at it and I think, there's people that say that about Toronto, and I I never get my back up about it because I just think some things aren't for everybody. Some people don't want big city traffic, big city commute. They like, they love the country, but Alberta feels like that, like Banff feel, must feel so separate than if you lived in downtown Edmonton. And I'm not knocking it because Edmonton and Calgary are big cities and people I know live there and like it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so remote and you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, especially when you're on that mountain. I mean, we, like a, we did like 25, 30 kilometer hikes and you're at the summit of a mountain thinking, wow, I can't believe this is my country. It's incredible. Just the views and... Uh, the, there's nothing like it in Ontario, that's for sure. I know you don't golf, but I bet you saw people golfing, commuting, traveling in cars with golf clubs. It's a big golf, uh, uh, Banff, Kananaskis country. It's a big uh, golfing destination. When there's not skiing in the winter, it's golf in the summer. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, of course it does. Uh, and I am a golfer, actually. I do golf. Yeah. Okay, well, we haven't played yet. You and I should should go. We should <laughs> play together. Grab nine, um, grab nine after nine some morning. There were a lot of people from all over the world there. So, so many yeah. different accents, you know, on the mountain, we would see so many different types of people, uh, so many different, you, lots of Europeans, lots of, lots of Australians, tons of Ontarians, so many people from Ontario were there, but just all across the globe, there were so many people there. It was, it's, you know, it's a big tourist destination. And it was nice to see that there's so many people there. Like the world is coming alive again and travel, as we know, is picking up. And it, it was just a, great to see people out there. I'm on, um, and I'll plug them. I'm on, I'm on Expedia like every other day looking at stuff. And I still have this philosophy. I think I told you before you left for your trip, your second trip, that I was thinking, I want to avoid Pearson Airport. So I still have worked this out to where we would drive to Buffalo, take JetBlue Buffalo to Boston, hang out in Boston for a day and a half. The price I saw for Boston to Heathrow Airport um, in Boston, Logan's a very convenient airport there, is 700 Canadian right now to go in late August. Wow. And it's about 1180 to go uh, Pearson. Heath- yeah, Pearson to Heathrow, yeah. 1180 Canadian. I don't understand it all. I don't know why there's a $480 disparity in the same currency um, that that's the case. But but you probably saw I don't know if you saw it and you and you're absolutely forgiven if you didn't. But we played a good chunk of it. Um, so if I said Ryan Whitney, this former NHL player, I saw it. Yeah. And I it, did see it. it now has two point one million views. And we play I, I think we played it on the show Monday morning when it had like uh, like forty eight thousand views. It has now is two point one. <laughs> it's not because of Toronto today. It increased that much. But we helped it Uh two point one million views. His his quote on the uh, on the video. I live at Toronto Pearson International Airport, the worst place on earth. I smell so bad, which is a wonderful Aww. thing to put on a T-shirt. Um, how was the Pearson experience? Because I want to talk about the vacation. It's sad that probably a lot of people have said and will say to you in the next couple of days, you're back. What was it like? The mountains. What was Pearson like? Tell me all about it. I'll be honest with you. I was in terminal. I was flying domestically. So, I mean, this this time around, it was great. It was a great experience. We got there really early. We were reading the horror stories. We were aware of what's happening at Pearson. So we got there early. We were through everything we were we were sitting at our gate at an hour 45 minutes to an hour later but we didn't check anything in we didn't have any luggage to check in so everything was carry on I think so, and no too. so no customs no check-in probably makes nope, a big exactly. difference oh right? huge difference like you like you difference. did customs on your last trip and that you got it i think you were telling me your your husband likes to be who likes to be there way 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 before does, four or five hours before, before kill, not four or five hours it feels like four or five hours whereas <laughs> well, i'm the kind of person that. just i'll sh- i want to show up right before the plane leaves like i'm that person 
And um, he, yes, there, there, I told you, there are two types of people. The people who show up extremely early for the flights and people who show, show up right before the plane leaves. And those two people find each other and end up marrying each other and then fight about that for the rest of their lives. Yeah, those people do exist. I like getting on the plane last. I will say if I've got just a little small carry-on thing or a backpack, That's I want to be the last person on this rush to be in zone one or zone two. Unless, again, unless you got little kids or older people. And I'm not there yet. Um, the need to get settled. I'm, I love walking on the plane last. Okay, well, That's I'm glad exactly. it, 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 no, was it was not a disastrous experience. No, and then yesterday when we landed, I thought, okay, are we going to be sitting here for two hours inside the plane? No. We we landed, doors open, we got out. We were, I was out of the airport in 10 minutes. And it was a great experience. But let's see, I was domestic. Let's see. I mean, internationally, maybe it's a completely different experience right now. Obviously, it is. It feels like that. Like like John Tory's weighing in on it yesterday, calling it completely unacceptable. The federal government may finally uh, be making moves here. How was our one of our favorite topics, the M word? Um, masks, compliant com- people compliant on the plane. Did you see much yes. of it in Alberta? What, tell us about that. Uh, no, Alberta is a different world. Yeah, <laughs> COVID <laughs> does not exist there it, anywhere. Anywhere, really, you don't even you can't even tell. They were um, they were done with COVID about ten months before the rest <laughs> of us were. They were. They really were, and you could sense it. I mean, no matter where we are, there's nobody. There's not even any anywhere indoors that we were. You don't, you don't see one mask. You know where I did see masks though. Climbing up a mountain, so climbing up, you know, doing all on all of these hikes of once in a while, I would see someone wearing a mask in the open air, outdoor weather. But, you know, to me, and then a couple of my friends did say something about that. And, you know, for me, I just thought, I'm sure a person like that has had a very negative experience during this pandemic, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be careful. You and I, I mean, we talk about this. Yeah, like, yeah. You can't judge people for how they're handling this pandemic and what they're doing. We all just have to do what we feel is best for ourselves and our families. It's, 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 it's absolutely true. There's no doubt about it. And yeah, we were talking about my trip with, uh, with my parents, you missed my, uh, like nine hour marathon. So I, I came in, did the show Tuesday morning, right after the show drove to London, pouring rain. It was, it was worse than this morning. It was worse than last night. It just poured most of the day Tuesday. So I drive to London. I pick up my parents. We're visiting in the car. We get to Windsor. So it's another two hours from there. And then we visit with my uncle and aunt from, from Toledo, Ohio. And they're, they're really, they're really close with me. Like they had two daughters. I like to think I'm the son they never had. I can't, can't get them. To, I can't quote them on that. I'm trying to. I'm trying When's to, the last time you've seen them? Six years ago, man. Oh, like, wow. Amazing. It was right Amazing. before. I told a story Tuesday, not in this time slot. So a lot of people probably didn't hear it. How I went for a run and they're, they're right on the Michigan border. So Ohio feels different when you're in like Cincinnati and you're right on the Kentucky border. That feels like the South. But Toledo feels like Michigan and Michigan feels like Michigan, New York State. Right. You know, feels like yes. a little more like Canada. Like you're just you're not too far from home if you're in Toledo, Ohio. But I, when I went for a run and people are like, what's the what's the political feel down there? Ohio is such an important state. And I love that electoral college stuff. And I, all I saw when I went for my run was Trump signs. That's all I saw. And I'm like, if it's like really? this in northern Ohio and Hillary got blown out. Out. I feel like it was like 62 to 36 percent wide. It was bad. It was way worse than any blowout. And um, and they they didn't know what to do. I literally sat with them at the kitchen table with my wife and my, my kids were running around at the time when they ran around, which they did six years ago instead of being more sedentary. And they uh, and they and they were like, we don't know what to do. We don't want to vote for either person. We might vote for Jill Stein. We might spoil our bet. Like that's they felt like a lot of people did last Thursday. Right. In Ontario, like mm-hmm. we don't have, we don't feel like we have a good option. And I'm thinking, OK, if you don't feel that way, 
then there's a lot of more people who are a little more conservative than my uncle and aunt, and they're, this is trouble. This is huge trouble for Hillary Clinton. So I remember having that sort of mental insight when, uh, when, I, when the election happened. But when I saw, put it this way, I came down with, with my mom, and I was saying to you earlier how, you know, she's, she's just a little, she's in that space where she was fine. She walked through the restaurant without a mask on to the patio because she really insisted on eating outside. And I'm like, absolutely, whatever makes you comfortable. I don't get that much time with him, so I want you to feel good about the decisions here. But I thought, imagine somebody who, who's a little two or three times more worried, concerned, panicked, traumatized than she is. And that's those are probably the people you're seeing in the mountains. And yes, exactly. We've got to we've got to let them be them. I want to help them, but right now it it if they feel in the midst of it, maybe there's not much we can do. Maybe maybe somebody's listening going, "Oh, that was me 6 months ago and I now that's I do everything now I do everything I used to do." And I'm like, "Okay." Or you had Omicron and you're like, "Ah, okay, it wasn't so bad for me. Now I can move forward." Hopefully that's the case for people. That's the hope. I'm- I'm hoping it. And we have to keep that in mind, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you and I argue about this often. There are so many things that we're seeing that don't make sense to us on mm-hmm. any level with how people are handling certain, the way they're living their lives. We, we have to just, everybody's doing what they feel is best for them. As long as it's not hurting anybody else, mm-hmm. I think we should just try to move forward together as much as possible. Totally. Great to have you back. Great to be back. You may have seen the news about mask mandates in the province and that uh, the province decided to lift many of the remaining mandates. It's been a while since I've even said the three letters together, ICU. And that's not for moving on um, from the pandemic, though, you know, in no uncertain terms, the pandemic did end a couple months ago. Why do I say that? People say, well, how come you've been saying the pandemic is over? COVID's not gone. Well, it was never going to be gone. Many of the people that love that phrase, um, COVID's not, you, you may be done with COVID, but COVID's not done with you. No, I know. And we are the population that said we're not going to be able to eradicate the virus. It was a controversial thing in the spring or summer of 2021 to say, we're going to have to learn to live with this virus. People would get outraged and they'd say, What? Why can't we eradicate it? Why can't we eliminate it? Look at what China's trying to do. And we still have. This is amazing to me. We still have people going, well, you know, China, look at their numbers. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You trust their numbers. You trust China to give you the proper numbers about who has COVID, who has died from COVID. You that like right there, right there. We need we need to have a conversation about that. You think they're preventing spread. You think they're not treating their citizens maliciously or abhorrently, and you think we can learn from China. I've taken a note as to who these people are. Some of them were given way too big a platform. Some of them uh, are just running forward into the fire, the fire of being wrong, the fire of getting it absolutely twisted. And all we can do is say, hey, good luck. I mean, get some help. Not on my watch. It's not going to happen. So when the mask mandates get lifted yesterday, I think several things. I do understand the idea that some people are are really hesitant. I know hesitant people. I know people that are uh, concerned about this particular virus. Now, there is a bit of a moral conundrum about all of this at the end of the day. If you want to say, Brady, you sound like you're on team reality. There's a, a lot of people hashtag team reality several months ago. And one thing that it seems patently clear is when you join Team Reality, you don't get a T-shirt. There's no membership. You don't send anything away. 
uh, in an envelope, a self-addressed stamped envelope, an SASE in the mail. But when you join Team Reality, you never go back. You never go back. The switch only seems to happen in one direction. The boat goes one direction up the river. And many of us have been saying that probably five, six weeks into Omicron. I remember the Thursday and Friday that we started finding out about Omicron in middle of November. It was awful. Awful to think that that a lot of the progress we made had been blown up. Awful to think that it was going to be politicized in one way or the other. Awful to think that there might be people with a more transmissible variant, either unvaccinated, immunocompromised, elderly, obese, whatever the whatever the big problems were for those people. It was awful to think that they were more fearful and maybe practically so. But that's how you know something is the right position is no one from I'll quote Noah body uh, here. No one from Team Reality's ever moved to Team Apocalypse. And many of us try and find some part in the middle there. But the switch only goes in one direction. It only does. One of the biggest things that I note about the mask mandates in the medical community was hearing from a listener yesterday. And here's what he wrote. And I, I won't say who it is, but someone close to him is a psychologist. And he writes, their office is considered a healthcare setting, so they have to mask. It's pretty dumb that they have to continue to mask during one-on-one therapy sessions. And as we all know, that person, the patient, and the psychologist could go different places the night before. One of them could go to a Raptors game. The other one to dinner. One of them could go bowling. The other one could take their kids to Palladium. Um, and And he writes, there's no doubt therapy patients, including children, would benefit from maskless therapy. You got it. A hundred percent. People assume healthcare settings is just hospitals and vulnerable people, but it's much larger than that. We talked to Dr. Isaac Bogosh yesterday about the mask mandate, how there's a lot of yelling and screaming about it. And by the way, the people yelling and screaming were wrong about what would happen when the mask mandate was lifted in March. They were wrong about what happened when we sent kids and teachers back into the classroom in January. I know there were a couple of renegade teachers sitting in cars outside protesting their unsafe working conditions let's have you drive let's have you work at an amazon warehouse for a day or two then you tell me what you think is safe and what's not let's have you work in a grocery store then you tell me what you think is safe and what not i can honestly sit here and excoriate the provincial government for some of the dithering and the ministry of education for some of the things they got wrong some of the safeguards they didn't initially provide but by january a lot was up and running. We needed to do a lot better for our educators in the prior months. But Dr. Isaac Bogar said, listen, clearly, this is so much more political than just the science of it. And the risk factor for people with COVID has changed. Risk changes with time. Okay, It's not like we're in the pre-vaccine era. It's not like we're in the middle of a massive wave right now. And, mm-hmm. and the policy should adjust to the current risk and the, and the current risk right now is markedly lower than it was one month, two months, three months ago. Not many people have gotten anywhere in science without going against the grain at some point in time. You might see something that is inappropriate. You might see something that is too reckless uh, in the other respect. And you might see something that is too controlling. I love listening to doctors that advocate for evidence-based infection control. That's the phrase I'd use, evidence-based infection control, data over fear. Instead, I think we've got a lot of people who've enjoyed, not Dr. Bogosh, people who've enjoyed the cameras, they've enjoyed the microphones, they've gotten self-interested, the ego consumes them, and it just it just feeds an energy. 
And there's a lot of people on those sides, because I've never heard Dr. Bogosh criticize another colleague publicly. The doctors I've put on just haven't done that. But I've seen a lot of ego-consumed doctors who shame and discredit people for challenging the narrative and who disagree with them. One of the things I think about with masking is simply that those who believe in indefinite masking, and again, the virus is here, we do have to learn to live with it, all that I laid out at the beginning of the segment, that masking even kids at 12 and under, when I tell some people that, I told my uncle and aunt that on Tuesday, that nobody, and they're, and they're in Ohio and they've lived a little more laissez-faire than we have in Ontario, I think that's safe to say. But those who believe in indefinite masking kind of ignore the fact that masking kids, it's an outlier in the Western world. People in Europe all the time are saying, what are you doing in Ontario? What are you doing in Toronto? What are you doing in Canada? What's with what's with the travel mandates to get on a train domestically? You've still got to show that you might have had two vaccine shots that might be as old as 14 or 15 months now. Half of the United States doesn't even mask kids. So how much longer? Are those mask zealots going to ignore this? Look, to me, there was a time for mandates. There was a time for talking about it. But a lot of the language has changed. I'd even argue the language of who's an anti-masker has changed. It's ridiculous to be mandating masks at this particular point. Is everyone who's like me, who got three shots, who masked with the best of them? And probably I was one of the earliest maskers uh, long before there was any kind of mandate. I was wearing it everywhere. And then I got my vaccine shots and my level of concern changed. My level of confidence increased. And I decided I want to help people who are who are parents who are saying, I got to get these off my kids. I'm not seeing the same kids anymore. And I've seen it. I've seen that development with my teenagers since March. Um, there has to be a respect for other people. There has to be an awareness. Um, you have to you have to have that, that sort of selflessness about yourself. But those who've advocated school closures. Those who didn't want schools to reopen in January, those who have uh, documented a love for indefinite masking of young kids for COVID, a virus that, if not less dangerous, is now, now pretty close to equal to the flu. Pretty close. You wouldn't have said that a year ago, and you would have gotten big trouble for saying it 15, 16 months ago. But it's a lot more true now than it was then. And if you, I've said this before, if you think that we're making mistakes here and that all kids in school who are vax eligible, they got to wear masks indefinitely, please protest outside the next Leafs, Raptors or Blue Jays game. Leafs and Raptors, it'll be a while. Please go to a massive sports arena. Hold up a sign. Go to the ROM today. Go to um, go, go to the Science Center today. Protest outside. That's it. That's better than the 30, 35 tweets you're going to send today. Um, and that'll be smug and dismissive of the quote unquote other side. I think that's a better scenario at that point in time. What's your thought on this? Is there a setting where we need to keep masks? I'm willing to listen. I know it's going to continue in long-term care. And my only significant issue with that is my father-in-law has been in long-term care now for close to two years. And I'd like him to see our faces. I like him to be able to recognize us. And it's harder to do with someone with early onset dementia OK, um, then uh, then you might think it's it's that's a difficult thing for us. When do we get to make that call? What changes two months from now, four months from now, six months from now? These are important questions. Let's do our quiz today. Yes. Our four for four quiz. Gord has that. And today is a significant, um, significant benchmark of a cartoon character. It is Donald Duck Day. I'm tired. You're telling me. 
And um, that sounds that sounds like a guess we had on a few days ago. I have the phone connection was lousy. I'm like, yep, you make some good points. Why? Well, yeah. Why is it Donald Duck Day? Because it was his first appearance on this day, 1934. Oh, get out! In a little uh, animated feature uh, short called "The Wise Little Hen." So we imagine got some... being that that suit in the boardroom that rejected the idea, and then he got overruled, or yeah. she got overruled, and they're like, "This character is not going to resonate. It will yeah. never last." I don't know what he's saying. We're, I don't understand. Right. right. Is he drunk? Is yeah. he is he a duck? Is exactly. it both? What's happening? Why is he wearing a shirt and no pants? Oh, we'll get to that in the quiz. Don't <laughs> Not you Gord? worry. <laughs> okay, let's do this, yeah. Gord. Okay, fine. So in 1942, there's a little animated feature as well called Donald Gets Drafted, in which it states he has a middle name. <laughs> he has a middle name, Donald Duck. Is it Canard? <laughs> Flounder? Is it Flounder? Falteroy? Or Dennis? Dave? I'm going to say Fulteroy. All right, Greg. Um, you're trying to get me to say his na- his he'd be his initials would be DD Duck and I don't think that that would be true. Okay. Triple D. Well, that's pretty good though. F- uh, Fondleroy, like little Lord Fondleroy. Let's yeah. go with that. Okay. Little Lord Fondleroy. And Sheba? I would love it if it was Canard. <laughs> yeah. It is not. It is Fulteroy. I couldn't find oh. a, no. I, I couldn't make it as obscure as that that middle name <laughs> yeah, is. That's true. All right. Number 2. True or false? Donald Duck is the mascot for the University of Oregon Fighting Ducks sports teams. Is that true or false, Sheba? That's false. Dave? Um, I'm going to say it's false. And Greg? Well, they are the Ducks. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But does Donald play a role? Uh, no, it's a different Duck. False. It's true. What? I really hesitated there. Way back when, in 1947, the university and Walt Disney himself, they made a deal to have his kind of likeness as the mascot and on the t-shirts. They've since amended it so that he's not really officially Donald yeah. Duck, but he's he looks like Donald See, Duck. That's what and I, he quacks I, like Donald Duck. They, so he that's is a Donald lot of Donald. money to pay to yeah. Disney every year. And, yeah, exactly. and that's a big Nike school with Phil Knight. That's yeah. Phil Knight school. So yeah. Donald Duck is so, more yeah. a Nike guy. That's yeah. Donald's footwear. But he, Donald F. He, Duck. He was full in up until 2010. Okay. So true or false? Donald is the only second only to Mickey Mouse in the number of animated feature films that he has appeared in. So he's number two, not number one. Is that true or false? Greg. I think it's true. I, I absolutely yeah. It's not I'm a, a goofy. Like nobody knows what goofy is really. Right. It's not the foghorn leghorn. It's <laughs> right. not him. Yeah, absolutely. Donald's second. Okay. Sheba? Uh, I would say that's true. And Dave. I'm gonna be different and say no way, Jose. It's good to be different. Yes. He has appeared in seven feature films more than any other character. Who's second? I don't Do know. Oh, you don't know? Okay, it's just not him. It's probably Mickey Mouse. <laughs> but I thought Mickey's number one. He's not number one, no. Mickey. No. That was be? the question. Donald okay. is number one. No, Donald is number one. Oh, sorry. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. no, I, yeah. I so understood Mickey the question. Mickey would probably be number two. Yeah, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay, it's not. And the burning last question. Why doesn't Donald Duck wear any pants? Mm. Greg, that's a really this is a freeform one. one. It's a f- what? It's like an essay question. You love these. He has, well, I'm trying to. I, I'm. He dresses like a sailor of some sort. He does. No one calls. No one says hi, sailor. But no. it's because his name's Donald. Fauntleroy. Um, I don't pass. It, it's I. He is like a white. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, you're, you're, not, gonna, you're not gonna answer. I, I don't he know. Suffer from some essay. kind of skin condition. Okay. I don't Shiva? know. Uh, because he's a duck and he swims around, <laughs> he paddles around in ponds and rivers, and he'd get his pants wet. All right, and Dave. That sounds uh, sounds like a 
likely answer, but I'm going to say it's because he only has wings, he doesn't have opposable thumbs, and have you ever tried to put on pants without using your thumbs? <laughs> Impossible. You know, I can give you points, even Greg, for that, because the answer is somewhat debatable, There's, but the real keen answer is, in 2014, a Twitter user said that Donald Duck doesn't wear pants because it would interfere with the production of preen oil, which is a gland in his bum that makes uh, oil so that his feathers will stay buoyant. Mm. So really? she was kind of on the right track. I'm getting these messages. Is, is Donald kind of an enemy of Mickey? Well, you know, Mickey's... Are they Mickey's rivals? All, no, well, they're personal, Well, there's... Yeah, but personality-wise, Mickey's all... Happy go lucky and Donald's angry and yeah, it feels yeah. like Donald. Like yeah. it's a little bit like the Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck dynamic. Daffy exactly. always seems a little jealous of yeah. Bugs. Yeah, so it's it's kind Scheming. of yeah, they're kind of polar opposites. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'm I enjoyed Whew. that and a, the sound effect as well. Yeah, it's a lot of work, man. <laughs> uh, no doubt. <laughs> well, yeah, all afternoon. That's why you asked an open ended fourth question. A week ago tonight, a considerable increase in seats. For the Ford government, they had dropped 76, which they were elected with in 2018. There was some attrition. There were some COVID issues. There were vaccination requirements. And they lost nine uh, MPPs via defection or kind of getting booted out of caucus. Um, there, it, it was a pretty you know militant government as far as kicking people out for things. But then they rise up 67 to 83. There were a lot of surprising things about that night. David Reedley covers the Ontario government for the Logic and National Business and Tech Publication and joins us right now. It's great to have you on. Um, a week ago, you know, coming into tonight, I, I there were two things that I talked about a lot Friday morning. No one saw the Liberals staying under double digits, not getting back to official party status. So let's start there before I talk about the NDP. I, I'm utterly shocked, and I'm also, you know, inconsolable that people, uh, I, I'm incredulous, I should say, that some of the MPPs were saying, ah, you know what, these things happen. The ball didn't bounce the right way. I'm like, you're not playing in a Stanley Cup playoff game. You had four <laughs> years to increase from seven to eight seats, and that's the best you did. I, I, yeah, I think anyone in the Liberal Party who tells you that they weren't shocked by it is lying to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say in their defense on that analysis that their popular vote total was pretty good. It's just that those votes were concentrated uh, in a few places, and the way the first past the post system works that, you know, you win a hundred percent of the vote in one riding and that gets you one seat. And that's kind of what happened to them. Uh, now that said that those are the rules of the game they were playing and they certainly should have seen that coming and behave differently in order to try to translate that level of support into uh, more MPPs, which is what the ball game is. Uh, so if they didn't do that, then that's on them. Uh, I do think they expected their popular vote though. You know, it wasn't too bad, but they, I think they expected it to be higher. And that is on Stephen Del Duca and his team for sure. And it's a weird one, too, David, because I, you know, if you'd asked me the morning after, well, what do you think Kathleen Wynne got for a popular vote in 2018? I would have been like 15, 16. It was it was more than 19 and a half. It was closer to 20 than it was 19. So all it meant was about three out of 100 more people, three out of 100 more people over the span of four years decided, well, we put you in timeout for one election. We're going to let you out now, and I'm going to go back and vote for you again. And 97 of those 100 people didn't didn't think that. Yeah. Uh, if the 2018 election was a catastrophe for the Liberals, then this was very nearly as catastrophic a result as that was. Uh, and I think that's a party that really... Mm. 
But I mean, they, they, they've forgotten how to be good at politics in Ontario. And that uh, covers a, a lot of ground from you know, the, the get out the vote to messaging to the quality of the leader to uh, what they actually stand for. And they probably just get one more shot. You know, if you if you run three elections in a row where you get, you know, 10 or fewer seats in Ontario, then you are the third party and uh, you're going to have a really hard time climbing in that hole. David, really kind enough to join us uh, from The Logic. Can I call it a good night for the NDP? They they were going to lose seats no matter what, but only dropped 40 to 31, held that official opposition party status um, and most of their key most of their key MPPs returned. Can I call it a good night? That. I, I mean, listen to yourself. <laughs> no, you cannot call it a good night <laughs> for the NDP. First of all, I don't think any any party goes into something like that saying we're, we're going to lose seats anyway. Most of our MPs, most of our key MPs uh, win their races. And, th- and that's a good night. No, they want to be the government. And if they can't be the government, they want to be a, a much, much bigger, more threatening opposition party. And they, they didn't do that. Uh, so that there's no, there's no way that was a good night game. But I would, I would the make the case. I, I good okay, not good, but but it it wasn't the disaster some saw coming. They didn't, and and the the election to win, I think, because of Patrick Brown's removal. Doug Ford's ascension. The election Andrea Horvath had to win and had her best opportunity to win was clearly 2018. They know they're not. They wake up on June 2nd, 2022, David, and they know they're not going to be the government. They knew that. Well, they knew that based on what the polls were saying at that point, but they had four years as the official opposition to make the case for why they should become the government. That's your job when you're the official opposition. And I mean, they, they it, the night of June 2nd was maybe a little better for them than they might have feared on the morning of June 2nd, but it certainly was not the uh, the night that they were expecting for in, uh, that they were, they were hoping for and expecting in June 2018 was going to come in, in the next four years. They did not make the case, clearly, that they should be running Ontario. There was obviously a leak about Stephen Lecce early in the campaign about his fraternity days at Western. Not great stuff, but but ancient history, oh. according to the voters. Um does Lecce, Lecce's been embattled, no doubt about it. Um, it, it. I think education minister was a tough portfolio before the pandemic with a lot of uh, of acrimony, and it got even tougher as the pandemic continued. Does he stay on? And if so, what does that portfolio look like moving forward? How, can the government offer any sort of olive branches to, to make contention? Uh, like uh, uh, the education portfolio has always been contentious in Ontario. It was with 15 years of the liberal government. What makes it better? Uh, there's a lot packed in there. I think I, after an election, uh, the way I, I always put it is, is you get a freebie cabinet shuffle. You've got, you know, some MPs are, or MPPs are out, some new people are in, um, you know, you're, you're naturally going to make changes and you can do it without people saying like, Oh, you know, what does this say about the quality of the cabinet and the quality of the bench and all that? You just, you can, you can rearrange things. I think we'll be able to tell a lot about how Doug Ford sees education mm-hmm. and provincial administration of education in Ontario based on whether he keeps Lecce in that position or moves him. Um, I mean, I, I think the thing to do probably is to kind of get a refresh by moving him uh, because it, it is a very, and, and is a very tough portfolio. And that's not necessarily a reflection on Lecce, just a way of, of clearing the air. 
because I mean, you got to remember before the pandemic, we teachers were on rotating strikes. Yeah. Uh, there'd been a lot of interruptions in classrooms in, in the first part of the school year in 2019, 2020. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and they fairly quickly reached uh, kind of placeholder labor deals to at least stop that because we could focus on other things, but teacher contracts are up at the end of August. So that's going to come back. And teachers, for sure, are collectively not great big fans of Stephen Lecce. And I think a lot of parents of kids in schools uh, through the last couple of years are not huge fans of Stephen Lecce. And so, you know, considering the, the, the all the school closures and back and forth on mask mandates, which is not necessarily Lecce's business, but he is the minister. We talk of uh, more remote learning, more more online classes and that kind of thing, which a lot of parents including me, have gotten a really close look at over the last couple of years and are not huge fans of. Uh, so, I mean, it's going to be contentious. Do you leave the same guy in there? If you do, you're saying, yeah, we're, we're ready for a fight. If you want to achieve some kind of compromise uh, yeah. and peace, or at least by time, you put in somebody different to, to handle that. Yeah. Well, let's when the cabinet shuffles, let's talk again, David. Really enjoy your yeah. uh, your insight here. Thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me. David Reevely covers the Ontario government for The Logic. Really enjoyed that conversation. I also, any guest that says, would you listen to yourself? I like that guest. I like that guest a lot. <laughs> Do I have to is the uh, is the response usually. Very excited to have our next guest on. Um, there's a couple things we're going to get to on that. Mask mandates. We're going to get to uh, inflation, obviously, has become this self-fulfilling prophecy. And that makes it harder for nonprofits. My, my uh, good friend, Chris Sere. I'll use his full name uh, from Barry is riding in his 11th ride to conquer cancer. I got him started in it and I've only done four. By the way, when you do the ride to conquer cancer for uh, for Enbridge, you go uh, Toronto to Ham- yeah, Toronto to Hamilton. You do 110K on the bike on the on the Saturday. I'm going to say there's certain body parts that hurt wor- hurt worse than others. The Sunday morning when you get on, you got to do 110 more from Hamilton to Niagara Falls. So I did that a few years in a row, got Chris into it and he does it every damn year, every damn year. And, um, and I don't know why I don't. I've got to get back on. Because on the fifth ride, by the way, you get a gold helmet. And I want that gold helmet. Uh, Daniel Russell is a certified association executive. She's worked nearly 15 years experience with not-for-profits, charities, and associations. And she joins me now on Toronto Today. It is great to have you on the show. I know we, we could have just recorded. Jason Chapman said, he, our, our executive producer said he was fascinated talking to you yesterday. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having a, a similarly fascinating, though time-sensitive, conversation, Danielle. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me on. And it was uh, exciting to sit here and hear you talk about the ride for cancer to conquer mm-hmm. cancer. I've done uh, ride for heart. I've never quite done the ride to conquer cancer. I'm very afraid of that climb up to Mohawk College. On the <laughs> I'm so day. glad you said that. Yeah, Hamilton Mountain. Everyone's like, yeah, but, and I'm like, can that be earlier in the day? And they're like, no, no, no. That's about that's about kilometer 103 to 107 directly up that Hamilton Mountain to Mohawk College. And I'm like, oh, fun. So you're not tired by then. Wonderful. But when you do it the first time, you realize, like anything, right? You do it the first time, you can do it a second time, and a third, and a fourth, and everything gets easier the more experience you got. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a really good introduction to to not-for-profits as well, because I think Ride to Conquer Cancer and the Cancer Society, people don't really think about the not-for-profits that touch them every day. And I know we're here to talk about inflation, but it's so important from a context perspective to understand that 
are not just talking about the food bank, although they do incredible work, but we are talking about, you know, the foundations that support medical research. We're talking about the co-op you take your kid to for daycare every mm -hmm. day. We're talking about the professional association that you're going to turn to uh, in a down economy if something happens to your job and you're looking to keep those skills up and keep that network strong. So I mentioned that um, I, I think so many things were happening before the pandemic and the, the big word, uh, the Sesame Street word of the day is exacerbate. And a lot of those <laughs> exacerbations were caused by the pandemic. It was harder for nonprofits either to get funds, Danielle, or get people to volunteer time. And then there's the whole way we go about and get money now. So much of it is online. People probably don't want to answer the door as much anymore when they don't know who's knocking at it. They don't want somebody wandering into their yard and saying, hey, have you got 15 minutes? So a lot of that concept has changed, was changing anyway prior to 2020. It's exacerbated now, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things you just touched on is online. And that's been a really big challenge for not-for-profits and charities because people who are donating expect that the place they're donating to you is going to have as seamless a platform as Amazon, which is a multi-billion dollar company. And mm -hmm. for really small not-for-profits, keeping that infrastructure up to date is a huge expense and it falls under that administration line, right? So a lot of people, when they go to donate to a charity, they're looking for impact. And so they're looking at how much of that line is going to administration without really realizing that they're that charity to a standard that comes out of that administration. I know, Danielle, we look for the government for help on a lot of fronts, and, and um, it's hard to knock, you know, um, the, the people can make the case, two cases, really. The federal government was there for us during the, the initial months of the pandemic when it felt like we were all in, in like a traumatic car accident. We didn't know what was happening to our lives. We didn't know what would happen to our existence. We're, we're trying to, we were, we were busy anyway, like I said, juggling everything. But subsequently, I do wonder for nonprofits, I wonder for charities, is there anything you'd call on, Danielle, the government to do to, you know, obviously, you know, give a tax credit back for donating to charities, for volunteering? Is, is there any, then I know that changes from volunteering to what's in it for me. And, but they, we may have to get to that point just to make sure that the charities that really help vulnerable people or help with a, a deadly disease, we really need to make sure those numbers are keeping up. It, incentives are part of life. Who's kidding who? Right. And I mean, I first I want to say there's some incredible work being done uh, in the Senate in Canada uh, around not-for-profits. So I don't want to discount mm -hmm. the fact that there's already some movement uh, in the sector. I will say, you know, and this is one of those things that I've experienced personally recently. Uh, there's a lot of talk in the sector about restricted and unrestricted funds and um, restricted funds in a not-for-profit or funds that you can only use for certain things. And one of the things that uh, I've seen personally, at least here in Ontario, is when you're generating those funds through an online lottery for example, your agreement with alcohol and gaming is going to specify what you can use that money for. And so I think, you know, flexibility uh, in that area, understanding that sometimes the things that we can't pay for are keeping people employed, keeping, uh, you know, the lights on in an organization. And when we go back to kind of this idea of inflation, 
not-for-profits are at a real disadvantage relative to the rest of the economy in the great resignation. You know, um, Adam Grant uh, very famously over the weekend said, if you're still in your job, you're effectively taking a pay cut if you didn't get a 7% increase. Well, for a not-for-profit to give their people a 7% increase is a big ask. So it's a big ask. Yeah. Kind of close some of those gaps. Daniel, uh, Daniel Russell's kind of to join us, a certified association executive who's worked nearly 15 years with not-for-profits, charities, and associations. Uh, let's go to a uh, rather heated debate in the headlines this morning, and that's the call by the province to lift masks in most places. Daniel, what, what does that do for you to when it's riding the TTC? Or are you just relieved that you can call your own shot? How do you feel about, about continued masking in long-term care homes, medical settings? How do you view it? Uh, I will say first to, to to set the picture, I'm the person who got their vaccine the first day I was eligible. Um, so I've really sort of leaned on the side of what can we do to protect ourselves? What can we do to protect others? And when I look at the mask mandate and full disclosure, I've been to a number of events. It's absolutely impossible to wear a mask in a cocktail party. But uh, I also know that there are a lot of people. I have a good friend whose husband is a um, organ a donation recipient. Yeah. And he's had five doses and he's still at risk. So the question I'm now asking myself is less about myself than it is. I've never wanted to be the person responsible for spreading this to somebody else. We know people are still dying. So how hard is it to wear a mask on the subway if I'm protecting a person who might be vulnerable who has to be there with me? Yeah, I was saying with Do- to Dr. Isaac Bogus yesterday. Um, there are those circumstances. I have many good friends who are around immunocompromised people. I, I took my, you know, 70 some parents down to meet uh, my dad's brother's family. And, and, and I was refereeing a lunch. I wanted to make sure no, no two things didn't get too heavy politically or religiously. I'll say that. But but in doing that, I recognize that there's different people at different risks and, and people at different confidence levels as well. It is a weird one, though, um, because I think people that have been through Omicron are are set for a certain point in time. So I think they they greatly reject the idea of mandates. And we know what a hot button it, it is for for schools and kids and teachers and whatnot thinking, yeah, it's one thing to put a mask on for a 10 minute subway ride. It's another thing to ask a five year old to wear one thirty five hours a week for a third straight year. So there's there's nuance to it, right? Absolutely. And look, I, uh, I'm a professor part-time at Seneca College and Seneca still has its mask mandate in place. So I gave a two hour lecture yesterday wearing a mask. It's, um, it's not comfortable. Uh, but I also don't know who else is in the room. I don't know. So would you, uh, would you take it off if they let you? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I Mm -hmm. think it, for me, it, I'd be gauging the comfort level of my students. So I would be asking them, and obviously they're not required to disclose this, but I'd be yeah. asking, you know, is there somebody in this room who uh, is concerned about their health or con- yeah. concerned about the health of a loved one? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's an issue. Hey, Danielle, I'd love to have you on. I'm, I'm out of time, but let's do this again and more frequently. Uh, you'd be a great voice to add to the show regularly. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much, Greg. Good luck on your golden helmet. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to wait until uh, 2023 or 24 of the year. There's some training involved, I'm told, to get up Hamilton Mountain uh, with any, unless I'm walking the bike up. And even then, that might be a struggle this year. Thanks again. 
Thank you so much. Daniel Russell uh, joining us on the show. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Join us tomorrow. We'll have more Cirque du Soleil tickets to give away and some surprises and hit all the big news stories heading into your weekend. Anthony Farnell with the weekend forecast also after 8.30 so you know where you can go and what you can do. It's all on the podcast tomorrow. And you can hear us live between 5.30 and 9 on the Radio Player Canada app and as well on 640toronto.com. Thanks so much for listening.